0: From Bloom, I'm Scabs, and you're listening to Love Rice. It's our podcast where we experiment and we're curious and interested in all the nitty-gritty parts and bits of love and life and happiness. Testing, testing. At Bloom, we're passionate about creating tools that support personal growth. The more emotionally healthy we become, the healthier the people in our lives are able to be as well. It all starts with you. So visit us at bloomforwomen.com. We've got lots going on this season. We've got our retreat lineup in Arizona and Tennessee, online coaching, and our upcoming Bloom Tour. As always, log on to bloomforwomen.com with the promo code SCABS. That's all capitals, S-C-A-B-S, for 30 days free. So a few weeks ago, I got to speak with this really brave woman who told me the story of how she packed up her life and left an abusive situation. I mean, she left her home and moved into a shelter with her children. And I'm in awe of her courage, despite being displaced. Recently, I also was in New Orleans and I got to speak with another woman who was 12 years old when... Hurricane Katrina blew through her neighborhood. Her family was evacuated to another city. And then weeks later, another hurricane flattened that city. And as a child, she lost everything. And we're hearing more and more about people across the globe and throughout the world who are being displaced from their homes. And maybe that's even been you. Today's story is about home. From the moment that Haley sat down in my living room, I could tell that the feeling and safety of home was important to her. And I think that's why she feels so passionate about the work that she's doing with the refugees in Greece.
1: A sense sense of home is very important and it's really hard to have that when I'm traveling so much. And when I go to Greece, I get really connected to being there because of all the refugees. And then we have an apartment there, the team has an apartment there, so I start feeling really home there. And when I come back here, I feel like my home is over there. But anyway, just, but but the idea of having like an actual home, like an anchor is just really good for me because I'm such a wanderer.
0: That's Haley Smith, the founder and the director of Lifting Hands International.
1: Well, there's a lot on my mind. Um, Right now we have a team, Lifting Hands International has a team in a camp in Northern Greece. It's a camp called Saras, a town called Saras. The camp is on the outskirts and there are over 500 refugees in the camp. Our purpose is to provide them services to help life be somewhat bearable. All of the refugees are Yazidi, so it's an ethnic religious minority in Syria and Iraq. And they aren't Christian, they aren't Muslim, they're, it's just an ancient religion they've been especially persecuted during this conflict, and ISIS um, attacked them on a particular day in 2014. Completely unexpected attack, and they killed a lot of people, a lot of Yazidis, and kidnapped a lot of women. It was a very coordinated and choreographed attack, it came from three different directions, and they attacked a place called Singhal, or Sinjar, that's how you say it in English, Sinjar in northern Iraq, and the Kurdish forces that were protecting the area couldn't really hold out against ISIS. And so ISIS came and and murdered thousands of men who tried to resist. And they kidnapped several thousand women, mothers, children, sold them into slavery, sexual slavery. And they can only be sold within ISIS. So even if one man member of ISIS is through with this particular slave, he can sell her to another member of ISIS, but he can't sell her to anywhere else. If the children are with her when the children turn when the boys turn 7 they get taken away from the mother and um sent to brainwashing camps where they train weapons with weapons and then they get sent to the front lines to fight against whoever's fighting against ISIS When the girls turn 9 they are taken Can from they the mom for a second Yeah Yeah it's it's awful when the girls turn 9 they're taken away from the moms and sold as adult sex slaves. So, that is what happened to several thousand people. They were kidnapped or killed. The ones that got away, there were a lot that got away, thankfully, but they had to flee into the mountains. That's the only way to get out. And the mountains are high in elevation and there was no water or food for several days. So a lot of them died while escaping, um, especially the elderly. The ones that did get away and were lucky enough to have enough money saved up, they got smuggled out of Turkey into Greece. And a lot of them are in uh, different camps in Greece. And 60,000 people right now are trapped in Greece. The countries that border Greece, they did not want to get stuck with some of the refugees that were still passing through and still waiting to to pass through and go to to Germany or their final destination, because sometimes it takes them a while to get to their final destination. They didn't want to be trapped with them, so they closed their borders overnight. And that essentially trapped about 55,000 people in Greece, and then 5,000 have come since March. I think I think a lot of people don't realize that, that why are there so many camps in Greece? Um, it's because they're trapped there. To understand this a little bit more,
0: let's rewind Haley's life.
1: If you go back 10 years, um, actually a little more, like 12 years, I had an eating disorder and I was very lost. And so I finally ended up in um, in treatment called Center for Change. So I was there for four months and I learned a lot and it was an em- the most amazing experience. I felt really empowered when I left. I got back to school and then started falling right back into old habits. And I was not going to, to give in. Like, I'm not going back to this life. Like, it's gonna kill me someday. I have to be able to, to help myself, myself. I have to be able to do it. Like, I can't just keep giving in to, to these, um, to the darkness or this awful pernicious perfectionism that I went and I I practiced one of the new things that I learned is just go do something like keep yourself engaged instead of sitting around the house feeling sorry for yourself and so I went to the public library and I went to the language section and I said I'm going to just I'm going to teach myself an alphabet and I'm not leaving the library until I learn the alphabet. So I picked out a book and it happened to be a book called Alif Ba, the introduction to Arabic sounds, Arabic language and sounds or something. And it was a really strange feeling when I opened the book. It was like this feeling that I, I just knew this is what I wanted to do forever. And I sat down and I learned it. And I took the book out and I learned the alphabet and learned all the sounds and learned how to write it and everything on my own. And I just fell in love with it so quickly that I... The next semester, I signed up for Arabic 101, and, and it led to all these amazing opportunities. I've lived in all these countries. I've, I'm so lucky because I've been able to live in the Middle East, and I can see that I've met the most amazing people there. And so a lot of these stereotypes I hear, I'm just like, it's so wrong. We don't hear about the good people. We know, only the hear about stereotype that you hear and that you'd like to oh, it's... right now. Well, it's the, the biggest stereotype is that they're all terrorists. There's two billion mil- Muslims in the world. And then, and then there's ISIS. And ISIS, everyone, like I don't know. Right now, especially refugee, being in, steep in refugee work, most people equate refugee with terrorist, and that could not be further from the truth. Yes, there are some refugee or some terrorists that slipped into Europe, posing as refugees. But Europe, the the borders were open. I mean, whoever wanted to get through got through. Mm-hmm. And people think that's going to happen here if we allow refugees in. But we don't just let them slip right through the borders. We have a huge like very thorough vetting process and they and It takes years. So refugees that end up in the United States, they have waited for years and every corner of their lives has been investigated deeply. And, and then, so I I don't understand it. Like 95% of ISIS's victims are Muslim. And, um, it's just so sad. Like the people I have met, even the refugees, they're so humble and so beautiful. And then you have the, the few jerks that ruin it for everyone. And that could be one of the reasons why refugees are not treated very well, is the fear of terrorism, this fear, this unfounded fear.
0: After a while, she settles down and lands her dream job in Boston, teaching Arabic in the schools. She loves it. She teaches there for a few years, but then has the feeling like she wants to move home. So she moves back to Arizona. She buys a townhouse and a dog, and she's near her family. She's home.
1: But there was this like weird feeling of unsettledness, unsettledness that I couldn't pinpoint. I was like, what is wrong with me? I just moved here like this is, like I thought this is what I needed to do. It was this very visceral, like unsettled feeling. Even though I had a home and I was close to family and I didn't know what it was, now I do. So here I'm at a, a new job. It's an office job, so I have a lot more time to kind of just explore the news or be online. <laughs> so I hope my boss doesn't listen to this, uh, my old boss, because I don't work there anymore. So I got, I got really focused on learning more about the refugee crisis and just seeing what was happening, and then getting on like, Facebook chats or Facebook forums and finding out that there's a huge need for Arabic speakers in Greece. And so I went last Christmas. I went for two weeks, and I translated at a registration camp. In, uh, on the island of Lesbos.
0: Haley tells a story about how early January 2016 she was volunteering, and two busloads of soaking wet refugees just unexpectedly arrived at the camp. They had capsized in the Aegean Sea just an hour before and landed on a beach nearby. And so to keep the people from freezing, they had to get them dry clothing and fast. And she remembers moving the women and the men into segregated changing tents and then had them strip their freezing clothes and wait while the volunteers ran back and forth between the clothing distribution and the changing tents to try to locate all the clothing that they needed. So they were quickly able to clothe the children since people you know, generously donate tons of children's clothes. They ran out of clothing and shoes for the adults, especially for the dads that left many half-dressed people huddling together for hours to stay warm. She talks about how the volunteers ran back and forth between the, the clothing distribution and the tents where the people were huddled. And she said they, they would rip the boxes open that hadn't been sorted or labeled, and one box had baby clothes, and then the next box had more baby clothes, and the next box, and then there were a bunch of shoes and high-heeled shoes, even bikinis and lingerie. And she said this is a scene and a story that unfolded in front of her eyes that she cannot unsee.
1: And what I saw there, I can't unsee. So I came back to the United States with this this idea of, like, there are a lot of people who want to help, but they don't know how to help. And they think they're helping by sending this stuff, but it's not helping. It's actually making things worse. And there aren't enough volunteers to go through all this stuff, or they're not packing it right, or they're not sending anything for men. Like, it's not working. And so I decided I have to make a way to, to make, to actually get them what they need. So that's how it all started, it was just, we were going to send a container of stuff that they needed. And it went from that to, now we have a, we have a team in, um, in Greece, in a camp. We work there every day. We provide all these services. We provide them thousands of dollars a month worth of, of aid that they wouldn't otherwise get. They don't have anything anymore. Like their schools, their, their careers, their cars, their homes, like all of it is gone. So there is no more home. And that is what they're dealing with. And so when I got back to the United States and people asked me how was it, it was like, like what I saw and the need I saw and, I, and, and just the amount of aid just being thrown at Greece, but all of it being wrong. Like, I would just love to see them taken better care of. The camp itself is very cramped. It, um, it's on an old, it's kind of like a community center that used to belong to the Department of Agriculture. And um, There's a main building and then there's just a lot of, just land, all of the land is covered by tents. And the building also has every inch of it people live inside it because uh, another camp a few months ago flooded and so a hundred new people came and moved inside the building plopping people into tents that have no floors every morning every day the a, a big military truck comes and drops off food um, for lunch and dinner and then for the next day's breakfast so they come usually come at lunchtime uh, and then lunch it's these it, it's kind of looks like a TV dinner but with one dish it's like one serving so it's like this little container that has plastic film on top and it's usually some sort of gloop it's sometimes it can be like a vegetable with like red sauce on it or some days it's just like potatoes or some days it's macaroni with like a little bit of sauce on it and um and some days it's okay like i've tasted most of them cuz like that's kind of Was going to ask you have you eaten Yeah and they're usually really disgusting. And I have very low standards. <laughs> I'm very low maintenance. And one day I was starving and I opened it and ate the potato. And I ate it in front of one of the families. Like they watched me put it in my mouth and I was like, oh, it didn't taste like a potato. It was a potato, but it tasted awful. And they were just looked at me like, see, I'm like, oh my gosh, I'm so sorry. And the dinner is kind of the same. It's the exact same thing. Um, so on one hand, yes, they're getting food. And some of it, some of it is okay, but most of it is not that great, and it's not what they're used to, and it's not fresh, it's not nutritious. It's calories, yes, but it's not good, and it's not choice. They can't choose what to cook, whereas if we give them ingredients, they can choose what they want to eat. How important is choice? It's uh, very important, because they don't have any choice at all. This is the second camp they're in, this particular population that we work with. Um, Right now they're going to get moved. Um, and then they get moved back. Like they're just constantly being shifted around. They don't have any choice. So one day they wake up and they say, hey, it's time to go. No, they have no choice. They they can't even, they've protested a few times to to make changes in the camp, but nothing's happened. They just don't have any choice. So choice is very important. And if, that, if we give them a little bit of choice, then, then we're really happy. And also keeps them uh, fed with nutritious food and, Helps them keep. Helps keep them a little grounded, and helps them feel at home a little more. Morale has plummeted. There's a lot of sickness. There's a lot of open wounds on the face. Um, what is that from? We're not sure. But it's also very cold, and they're. They've been told many lies in the beginning. They were told that they would be in these little containers. Um, these empty containers that sit in front of the camp. There are 37 of them, so it's not enough for everyone, and, uh, but they were told in the beginning that they would all be in containers in, within two weeks, and that was... When you say containers, is it just like a... Just like little portable houses that they just shelter, mm-hmm. and has um, you stick two together, and in the middle there's like a little shared um, toilet and shower, which is amazing, but they've been there since early August, and they're still just sitting there empty. Um, no one's moved in and it's very hard for the people because they were told they've been told for so long this is happening This is happening and it's not happening and they can see it. They can see it right in front of them And, um, and that's one of the things is there's just there's a lot of things that could just make it would just be so easy to, to do And it's just not happening <sighs> I'm complaining again.
0: That's okay.
1: I think the reason why I talk about this when when people ask me is I sometimes I feel very alone because um, not many people actually know what's happening. I think most people know there's a refugee crisis and that's kind of where it stops. We don't hear about it. It's no no one's fault except that we're just not being told. It wasn't until I actually went there um, that I was like oh my gosh (laughs) like I can't believe this is happening in 2016 in Europe. Okay, this is what I this is kind of what I want to express is that it's a lot harder to give help than it looks. And um, even shipping goods from America to Greece is almost impossible. The import taxes are too high and you have to be a registered NGO in Greece, which is impossible to do right now. And so it seems a lot easier. Like, why don't we just ship things there? uh, People will say, oh, we have boxes of stuff we can send to you in Greece. And I'm saying, no, you can't. It's so much it sounds easier. Or we, we, do, we spend about $2,000 on vegetables a month um, because their diet doesn't have fresh vegetables and that's unacceptable. And so people say, well, why don't you plant a garden? And I have to tell them because we don't have permission to. And we have asked several times and we've been told no so many times that we've just, we've just started buying the vegetables instead of waiting to plant a garden. If we bring anything into the camp, we have to tell them this is what we're bringing into the camp. If we bring in a wheelchair for an old man who requested a wheelchair, we have to tell the camp manager. And she can say no. Does that happen? Yeah, it does. We are very limited uh, compared to our capacity and our skill set and what we can do. And our donor base and our support base, we could do a lot more than we're doing, but we're, we're very limited. But what we do provide is very important. And I'm not sure what the people would be doing without us, honestly. Like we a weekly hygiene kit, with soap, shampoo. We also give them um, not just vegetables, but flour, sugar, tea, salt, um, oil, so that they can cook their own food. Educational resources. Um, our population, particularly, has a lot of trauma because of the nature of the attack on, on their area in Iraq. Um, a lot of people were a lot of people witnessed executions a lot of people witnessed rapes um, there very well could be people who were captured but escaped. I mean we could have former sex slaves in our camp we don't know, but it's very possible. Do you speak the language? I speak Arabic um, but they speak Kurdish and then a lot of them speak Iraqi Arabic as their second language, which is a different dialect from what I speak, but I can definitely communicate with them um, they don't always like talking about home and I don't often press the subject and last time I did ask someone the information I got was so shocking and sad that I wonder if that kind of resurfaced her trauma. I asked her about her family and she's married um, and so she's she traveled with her husband's family and her family stayed behind so I asked her how's your family like how are your mom and dad how are your siblings and she said they're okay, but my cousin, all of her, her and all of her seven children were kidnapped and we haven't heard from them. Um, and so I think a lot of people are very curious, like, who are these people? Like, where do they come from? But to them, they don't want to talk about it anymore because it's over. Or there's just a lot of unresolved trauma. Um, for sure. A lot of trauma. And they look older than they are. They've been through a lot in the last two years. And uh, So a lot of them, they try to f- suppress their memories, they try not to remember. They actively try not to remember their lives. The, the camp, though, uh, so in, instead of working inside a building, or we, we thought we would be able to decorate a room and just have a really nice, safe space, especially for women. Re- instead, we have uh, a tent that fits eight to nine people. Um, the children ripped it because, I mean, there's 250 children running around. Um, so the back is completely open and ripped and then if it two rains, doors. yeah, two doors, if it rains, uh, the whole flo- the whole tent gets flooded. And so, and it rains a lot during the winter. And, um, so that's, that is what we do now instead of uh, when we first started the camp, we thought we would be able to just allow the people to run the camp themselves, to offer so many services, to just make it nice, to build it up. Um, and then to have that just taken away from us was very painful and all these promises that we made to the people, we had to break them and not everyone understood why a lot of people thought we were in cahoots with the, the management and it's been hard to reestablish the trust, uh, but we love, we absolutely love the people and um, we're not sure what's going to happen, but this is a microcosm, like it sounds really bad and negative, but it's, it's just what's happening. This is one of 39 official camps in Greece, and most camps are like this. This family has several daughters. I think they have six kids total, so mom and dad. And they have two teenage girls, or one is 16 and one is 19. Both of them are learning English quickly. They are amazing students. They come to our English classes and German classes and they're learning very very fast and um, they're so sweet and they just constantly want to learn. An amazing family. And then next door they they have another family that's related to them and and so they often just mix together. Uh, The mom is very sweet, um, has a bad back, um, so she sits as much as she can but she's always up and at it trying to serve her family and cook and she cooks outside on a fire. Uh, they use like old um, baby formula cans to boil water and then have some pans. They all have like a pan that they got from the UN that they cook uh, potatoes that we gave them and oil that we gave them. So it just smells like camp. Inside there's some, a few cots, but they keep, it, they keep it very clean. They have these, these branches, uh, these brooms that they've made from branches, and so they sweep it out. It's very clean. You take your shoes off before you enter, and it feels like a home. As much as possible like they've made it home so my team lead her name is molly she's from phoenix area actually she is a yoga specialist and i think and, and we teach yoga And i think some people hearing that would be like okay like you work in a refugee camp and you teach them yoga okay sounds so sound yeah it sounds so like spiritual or like let's get in touch with our inner selves or and um, even, I have to admit, I was a little skeptical at first only because I've done yoga before and I think it's great exercise and stuff, but I never, I'm like, oh, it's cool. Like,
0: you learned the magic of yeah, the yoga it's, therapy, didn't you? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs>
1: yeah, and it's, it is therapeutic. And the more research I did and the more I talked to Molly, I was just way convinced that this is a really good treatment for trauma and it, it mm-hmm. promotes mindfulness. And anything that promotes mindfulness, they eat it up. They love it because it does help them be right here, right now. Heal, and it helps them think about things in a, in a different way. And, um, it's just unfortunate that we offer our yoga classes in a flooded tent.
0: That um, can only fit eight just people. a few people. And do you have any regulars that come to your yoga? Oh yeah, we have regulars. What do you
1: see? Yeah, there's one woman who comes, um, her, she's with her husband and his mother. His mother is, they say she's 116 years old, we're not sure how old exactly, she, if she really is 116, but she is clearly very, very old. <laughs> she can't even sit up. She just lays on a, a pad all day. Very, very old lady, But um, and she's, uh, she's become, for lack of better terms, she's become delusional. So at night she talks a lot and tries to sit up and tries to walk around, and so they don't sleep very well because they're always trying to protect her from getting up and falling. So this poor lady is just kind of just stressed. She comes to every class we offer. Yoga, fitness, English, German. She's there at every class. And if she's not there, that means something bad has happened.
0: What do you think Um, that indicates in her? And What do you make of that?
1: To me, that symbolizes the strength of of her. But it also, I don't know. How do I say this? The people, the, the Yazidis are incredibly strong people. And they want the best for themselves, they want the best for their families, and they will do what they can to get it. They want to take care of themselves, they want to learn, they're hungry, they are starving for education, for any sort of activity, for any sort of routine, for any sort of semblance of normal life.
0: I mean, so when you see this woman coming to your classes day after day...
1: Yeah, it, we, we, we love it. It makes all of the hard stuff worth it, for sure.
0: What, have you noticed any progress in her? any changes in particular?
1: No, no, they only, no, she's a rock. She's always been a rock. It's honestly, the most changes we have seen are in us. Tell me about that. Just to be around people who have lost everything and who are so humble and giving and and insist we come in their tents and eat food and drink tea and, and we're the ones that are like having the hardest time because we're struggling with, with, Politics in the camp and everything—it's like when we enter the camp, we're the ones being healed because their hospitality and their love and their appreciation. And so <laughs> we often talk about this. We, we really don't feel like we're helping that much. We feel like we're the ones being helped.
0: How does that feel?
1: It feels wrong on one level, but on another level, it just feels like this is what. Is healing for them as well as to be able to bless and serve. And if they can bless and serve us as volunteers and it helps them feel useful or like just makes them connect with themselves again or they connect with their culture, then we're happy to, to accept their help. <laughs> you don't always, as a volunteer, you don't always want to show how you're feeling because you need to be strong for them you need to show you need to be consistent for them you need to show them that you're strong and that they can depend on you but sometimes it's impossible to do that because it's a high-stress situation Um, I have a few families that I trust so much that I can just go in their tent start crying or just sit down and just say "I'm, I'm done for today I can't I can't deal with this and they just make me laugh or they give me some water or like give me a hug and just sit next to me, make sure I'm not alone. And I, I don't want to sit there and, and I don't usually tell them everything that's happening because usually the reason I'm upset is stuff that I don't, don't want them to know about. So I'd sit there and, and then, and then inside, I'm always feeling really conflicted. I'm like, I shouldn't be doing this. This is so against, you shouldn't be doing this as volunteers. You shouldn't be super vulnerable. You shouldn't show them. But then on the other hand, it's like, well, I'm human they're human. It's good for them to see that because they're suffering a lot too and sometimes I wonder if they don't allow themselves to suffer as much. So if they see other people being vulnerable, it allows them to be vulnerable as well. I had a friend come for a few days and she, um, she's a photographer and so she came into the camp for a few days and was really, she really didn't want to eat their food. Uh, the family that was insisted and I'm like, eat the food, like this helps them feel whole, this helps them feel like they're back home. Like, Giving and being hospitable is a huge thing for them and she felt like oh I can't, I can't eat this. Like, eat it! Do it! And she did but she felt very uneasy but the family they just watch and they just love serving. And so by the end of the dinner she was just so touched like, it's just like I'm the one, I'm supposed to be here to help and I'm not helping. I'm being helped. I'm like that's how it is though and that's how they want it to be.
0: Haley also wanted to emphasize the local refugee crisis in Phoenix, Arizona. That's her home base. Thousands of people have been and are being relocated to Phoenix. She needs volunteers. So if you're interested and you want to get involved, or even if you want to learn more, visit LiftingHandsInternational.org. Check them out on their Instagram and also on their Facebook page.
1: The most, if people really want to help but they're very busy, the most the number one most useful thing, especially for overseas, is money. Because it's almost impossible to send things to Greece. Like, to send a container is almost impossible. And people, when, they, when people serve, they really want to use their hands. They want to give items, they want to give things, they don't want to just give money. But when we get donations, monetary donations, we use that money right away. And we buy vegetables, we buy food, we buy hygiene. Right away, with that money, and we put it in the refugees' hands right away overhead people are concerned about overhead i am the only employee of lifting hands international i do this full time i'm no cheapskate i don't make <laughs> i make i make about $18,000 a year that's how much i take and i refuse to take more cuz i want as much as much as possible to go to the refugees and so people are very skeptical like i don't want to i don't i don't trust overhead i don't trust nonprofits it's like please <laughs> that's the number one most helpful thing Just do $10 a month, but that helps us so much. It also helps us to be able to plan our budget if we know money's coming every month. Also in Greece, we we don't just help the camp. There's a lot of homeless refugees living in squats, like abandoned hotels, abandoned hospitals. We have, there's a school in Athens that has 400 people and they hardly get anything um, because they don't have anyone looking after them. But they prefer living there because it's actually shelter, whereas living in tents It's much, much worse. So when it snows and rains, they have a shelter. Um, So we will provide goods to them, too. Yeah, there's there's just an unending amount of need. And the best way to to meet that need is money.
0: Look for links and information in our show notes, which will be on our blog at bloomforwomen.com. I want to give a special shout out to Bloom for powering this podcast, to Brandon for his sound edits, and to the Center for Change in Orem, Utah, which Haley describes as her genesis. Another podcast? Done.